I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Welcome, this is episode 7 of the Paul Ryder Tapes. I'm Angela Smith, Paul's ex-wife, and as we all know, Paul sadly passed away in July of 2022. He didn't do many interviews, but he was so frustrated by the lies that had been told about him and the band that he wanted to set the record straight and decided to sit down with me to tell his complete life story. He wanted to share his crashing lows as well as the highs, hoping it might help others going through similar things. I was absolutely blown away by what followed and how much he opened up. We had no idea he was about to die, and we finished recording his story just 12 days before he passed away. Coming up in this episode... Oh, that, was a, that was a funny day. We was, we was going to do a bit of swapping and changing, weren't we? So I think I was going to go and play the drums for the Mondays and... Someone was going to come and do something for the, play the bass for the roses and so on. McGee came up with uh, Sean wants to write all the music for the new Mondays album. <laughs> and it, it's like, yeah, take my job away, dude. So I was always in the Mondays office trying to get this role that wasn't created yet as the girl from the Mondays uh, because I loved um, T Rex and I wanted to be that girl. Um, to do something like that with the Mondays. I found it once in the tape store with um, with a uh, with a, a little record player that was hooked up to a little stereo system, and um, it was in the pitch dark, just dancing to ABBA. And he said, "We've done it, we've done it." I said, "Yeah, fucking great. We've we've played Wembley." He went, "No, you dick. I wore, I wore knickers all the way through the show." 
So last time we were talking about your second album, Bummed. So where was that mixed? We mixed it in Strawberry in Stockport, right. but recorded in Great Driftfield. Was that the first time you met John Pennington? Yeah, in Strawberry. Yeah. When he was like 17 years old. I left school at 16 and then and went straight into Strawberry Studios after a stint of uh, summertime uh, landscape gardening, which was terrible. First session I did was Echo and the Bunny Man. Second one was the Smith's Queen is Dead album. Um, and those were like amazing, amazing kind of experiences. And then Martin asked me to, to get involved with um, with the, the Happy Mondays project. Most of the backing tracks have been recorded, guitar, bass, and drums. So most of the time was uh, recording vocals and basically finishing off this entire project. The legendary Tony Wilson had signed the band to his factory label and he was keen to hear how the album was going to turn out. This is him speaking in 2005, before his untimely death. The right producer and the right songwriters were chosen. Pop is like movies. Movies, you've got the screenwriter, you've got the director, the producer, and you've got the actors, all the talent. All coming together to make something great. Pop is putting the right package together like in a movie. Paul and Sean's mum, Linda, has really fond memories of Tony. Tony Wilson never called Derek Derek, uh, and he never called me Linda. He always called me Mrs Ryder and Mr Ryder. And Derek once asked him, why didn't he call him Derek? And he said, that is a sign of respect. John Pennington mixing the Bummed album at Strawberry Studios at the tender age of 17 had his work cut out. When Sean came in, he was on lots of different substances. I can't tell you what, what he was taking at the time, but it was, it, you know, they'd, sometimes they'd come in and they'd say, right, OK, we're going to start the session at 2 a.m. So they'd come back in from the Hacienda and they'd all be off their brains on... Um, probably ecstasy or acid or both from the first session that i did i just put a microphone in front of it it ended up grabbing it and um you know just shouting into it which with a very very high quality very expensive microphone is not the way you're meant to do it when factory signed them anthony wilson sent me a great big case of champagne it was absolute chaos because you know i'd, I'd say right okay we're ready to do a vocal take now and I'd say to the band, like, uh, where's Sean? Um, and I'd have to go and find him. And um, I found him once in the tape store with, um, with, a, uh, with a, a little record player that was hooked up to a little stereo system. And um, it was in the pitch dark, just dancing to ABBA. Um, in <laughs> in <laughs> I don't know, Dancing Queen? I can't remember what it was. I'd never had a drink in my life. Till I was in the 40s. I'd never been interested in alcohol. And I got the champagne. They used to say to me, Oh, come on, mother, have a drink. Rax, have a drink. I'd set up um, three microphones. So one, which was like a dummy microphone, which Sean could hear. And then another one behind that, which was the real microphone. And then two either side of him, if he wandered off. And, you know, I could capture that. So I had four microphones going on, and then he just did the ah uh, ah uh, ah uh, ah uh, vocal once, right? And uh, I was like, okay, that's kind of cool. What basically became the chorus was the 
uh, ah, um, and it, you know, at the end of the song, you can actually hear where I start getting bored of putting the ah. It's kind of like playing the the sample on different octaves. So there's like a there's like a high one and a low, and then a, yeah, up the top. You know, I was 17 working with this great band, and they're all having a lot of fun. You know, doing whatever they're doing, wherever they're doing it. Tony Wilson sent me. It was like a thing of cardboard box with all these miniature bottles of vodka, all different flavours, and they were lovely, except the peppered one. I didn't like that. We wasn't even going to do a song called Rave On. It was a it was a work in progress. Yeah. It was going to be. Um, the two other songs and an old song and it was like no no this is too old we need to do something new and i had this idea of a bass line for rave on which became rave on yeah so we put a brand new we wrote it in the studio in uh, oxford at richard branson's uh, residential studio but Richard Branson's studio was mega. It had this like outdoor pool, and it was winter time. But it had a big blow-up dome oh, o- nice. over the over the pool, so it was like bath water when you got in it. Nice. You know, and for us, for us coming from where we where we came from, to having to living in a mansion with go karts at a, go- a race golf cart course at the bottom of the garden. And an outdoor pool with a dome over it was kind of special. Did you think, oh, we've made it now? No, still has a lot to prove. I thought it was on our way, especially with doing that song, we turned into Rave On, doing something new and writing it in the studio. Yeah. That was kind of cool. Do you remember a moment when you, th- when you thought, shit, we've made it? Like, what was the turning point where you thought, wow, we're, we're being taken seriously? Now. I thought it was going to be when we got on Top of the Pops. Yeah. It was like, yeah, I've done Top of the Pops. I've been on Top of the Pops, but it wasn't. Gaz Whelan, the Monday's drummer, recalls when he felt that they were beginning to make it. Probably 24 hour party people, a single that maybe, after Tart Tart Party People, that kind of got. A Tart Tart was played on the chart show on a Sunday morning. And it got to number one in the indie charts. Indie charts was like kind of a big thing then. So that was when we started to gain people coming to the gigs. I mean, the first places we had an audience were London, Blackburn and Leeds. We couldn't get arrested in Manchester. Us and the Stone Roses couldn't get arrested. We are hated in Manchester. It was all that jingly jangly pop and they hated us. The Manchester Press, Manchester Radio Station, they all hated us, yeah. I wanted more and more and more. What was the first Top of the Pops appearance? It was Hallelujah and, and the Roses did Fool's Gold. Right, OK. What a great moment, both going on Top of the Pops at the same time. I, I got told they had screens in pubs in Manchester, big TV screens, so people could watch it. Yeah. The rock and roll mums, Paul and Sean's mum, Linda, and Gaz Whelan's mum, Sandra, I remember that moment very well. Oh! <laughs> oh marvellous, that one. Wonderful. <laughs> oh, yeah. We had all the relations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we got there. We we didn't really know the Roses that well. They'd be, they kept us apart in, in town. They were kind of from a different... Like We used to see Manny would come in the Yacienda sometimes. We didn't really know them that well. We met them as we, as we arrived there. They were on stage doing their run through. And we walked in and, he, and we'd both gone to Richard Krem, or Dick Cream as we called him, Richard Krem to get our kitted out. 
and he'd give us all these designer clothes. I'd got this black gold chair top that zipped up, and Ian had the red version, exactly the same. We watched it, and we just went, oh, no, yeah. And then we met him in the bar and had a drink, and we got on with him really well. Manny, the bass player with the Stone Roses, also has really fond memories of that day. <laughs> that, was a, that was a funny day. We was, we was going to do a bit of swapping and changing, weren't we? So I think I was going to go and play the drums for the Mondays and someone was going to come and do something, for the, play the bass for the Roses and, and so on. Never quite got round to it, but uh, it would have been a, a, a good jolly jape. Yeah, it was great, yeah. Bob Sayers. Yeah. Oh, they've made it now. They've yeah. got on top of the pops. <laughs> and I'm just really, that was really nervous. I was disappointed because we thought the BBC bar, I thought it'd be full of like, you know, Nazis and Nazi soldiers and, and Roman soldiers and, you know, people dressed as cowboys and Indians, you know, and all that. And he was just a load of office staff. It was really boring. I remember it being such a main event. You know, the people, there was like a big fucking party in Dry Bar. And it was like the two, here's the Manchester's arrived. Could you be millionaires? Oh, oh I yeah, wish. Yeah, yeah, I wish, yeah. We did it all. Recorded. I remember being really, we couldn't hear it. Couldn't hear the the, feed, the play feedback. The playback on stage, having to mime. And really, because you wouldn't grow up watching Top of the Pops since you was a kid. And I was scared to death. Really, really petrified. And I think Paul, well, we all were, we was all petrified. I don't think the fucking BBC knew what the fuck was going on that day. There was a lot of uh, brandy quaffed, uh, other substances ingested. We're so glued to it. Yeah. <laughs> and you think you run your back and you know with experience, no one cares, no one sees, no one's looking, no one really bothers. But at the moment you think you're the centre, you're not you yourself, but what you're doing is exposed to everything. Uh, it was a very, very special time and it's, it's good to see your buds doing well, you know. And my phone never stopped ringing. Oh, yeah. We stayed behind afterwards and then Tina Turner was on doing a, a pre-record for the next show. And me and Paul all said, oh, we've got to go and see Tina Turner. Tina Turner, you know, I can Tina Turner, I've got to go and see her. And we walked out and Paul went for a cig and we, it got locked up. We lost him. So we only mean, probably just walking slow behind, you know what he's like. And me and Ian Brown went in and watched her do this thing and she walked past and Ian Brown went, yes, Tina. And she went, oh, you English boys. And I remember something like that. He says he said something else, but I think that's what she said. And Paul was really gutted and annoyed at us. He thought we'd left him on purpose. And uh, that's all I remember. It was just a great day, but really, really nervous and scary day, that. That's probably the most nervous I've ever been in my life. I don't think there was rivalry of, of, of any sort. We, we was always like, myself and Ian, fucking loved, loved Paul, loved the Mondays. I loved them all as guys, you know, and... Uh, no, there was never an, oh, they've one, one chart place above us or anything. You know, there was none of that going down. That's, uh, that was never on anyone's agenda, that. Probably all too smashed to fucking even think about that, that way, you know. My dad, he got quite poorly, and that's when they were on top of the pops. And he said, I, I kept saying, come on, Dad, go and get into bed. We'll get you upstairs. I want to see the boys on the telly. And he watched them on the telly. We took him up to bed and he died the next day. So he got his wish. So when when was it that he thought, right, we've made it now? Like, what was the... Um, well, I thought it was going to be when we toured America. Mm. And it was like... Okay, we've done that, but we need to come back and do bigger shows. So I still didn't think we'd made it. Right. So there was no defining moment. Really? Not even when you did GMEX or Wembley Arena? Or... 
I've got a great Wembley story. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> Come on, what did he say? See if it's the same. I can't really remember. He was coming off stage and Gaz got hold of me. He said, we've done it, we've done it. I said, yeah, fucking great. We've, we've played Wembley. He went, no, you dick. I wore, I wore knickers all the way through the show. <laughs> <laughs> he had women's underwear on. No, I don't remember that, but I'm not... I'm... <laughs> we were Spinal Tap. Didn't he used to wear high heels as well sometimes, Gareth? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, he has no problem doing that. I don't have a problem with him doing it either. <laughs> he, look, he looks quite sexy. <laughs> <laughs> so it was around this time that the Manchester EP was released, wasn't it? And John Pennington was involved in that as well, wasn't he? Yeah. The band had come back from the Hacienda one night and... Um, they brought maybe 30 other people with them. Oh. And uh, we were trying to get a vocal take out of Sean. Sean said, hey, I want um, everybody to uh, everybody that's with us to experience what it's like in the studio. So we had at least 50 headphones that we could put out. So we had maybe 25 people in the studio. I don't know whether you've worn headphones and yeah. been listening to loud music through headphones before. Most people hum. You know, to whatever they're listening to. They don't know they're doing it because the vibration in their head. Um, and um, basically, the record, all of the recordings on Manchester. Manchester, behind all the tracks, if you basically got 30 people all humming along to the track. Like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Sean scared the living daylights out of them in the control room at that time, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Somehow, Sean had, had managed to bring back a blank firing gun from America. The first I remember of it was Sean kicking the door open at the control room, which was, which was like this thick. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't small. It was, it was a thick door. So he kind of kicked the door open with this blank firing gun. Um, and Sh- Mar- Martin and I were mixing at the time. And, um, yeah, so Sean comes in and says, uh, I can't remember the line, but it's a line from a movie that he loved. This is a blag, get down on the floor or something and let off these, you know, six rounds of black firing pistol in the control room, which is an acoustic space. So there's nowhere for it to go. And as soon as he'd done that, basically, Martin and I and everybody else that's in the room is just completely deaf. It's just like, you know, I don't know how loud guns are but basically you know that was it for the at least the day so martin and i just looked at each other it's like can you hear anything i was just like what (laughs) and you ended up being friends with john pennington for the next 40 years didn't you Mm -hmm. okay so we were at the point where you were releasing the hallelujah ep yeah and that was when i met you in iceland and then mtv Mm-hmm. Started getting more interested. That was in a good moment. MTV getting on MTV thanks to you. Was it? Yeah. I used to share an office with Alan Howard, who worked alongside me at MTV. He was a producer there from 1987 to 1996. Because nobody really knew how to take them. They were. They're not. They weren't the kind of band that MTV were used to. MTV very much was set up as like a 
a polished rock outfit and we had people like i don't know george michael um and culture club and these guys were coming along and they were all not so much culture club but they were pretty much trained into how to do a how to do an interview how to behave and how to behave like big stars um but the mondays were like the complete opposite of that they were a bunch of scallies from a housing estate who turned up um who weren't wearing the the necessarily the clothes that rock stars wore they were wearing the clothes that blokes on a um football terrace would wear and it was big style stuff for where, for for where they came from but not for the music press and not for the um not certainly not for MTV and the music press went for them a lot more and a lot quicker than MTV did because they just didn't know what to make of them yeah that, that was a that was a good moment but i still didn't think yeah we've made it I still don't think we've made it. What would you, what would have to happen for you to think, oh, we made it? Um, at this point, probably one more album. One um, more album. We're jumping ahead, but are we going to go there and talk about why there hasn't been one yet when you got back together ten years ago? Actually? Ten years ago. Like, why has there not been a new Mondays album in the last ten years? I think it's because me and our kid aren't getting on. Right. You know, we're not even on, I think I said this before, we're not even on the same book, never mind the same page. You know, I think when me and him kind of uh, start liking each other again, maybe there'll be an album. But I've got enough stuff and ideas for at least another five Mondays albums. I've never stopped writing. Reading between the lines, the blockage isn't the band, is it? The blockage is Sean. Sean's the one who doesn't want to do an album. I sent him a text a few years ago saying I've got these great bass lines. Um, do you want me to send them to you with beats, bass lines and beats? You know, you do what you want with them. And he sent an email, a text back saying, there's politics involved. And it's like, what the fuck does that mean? There's politics involved. That was all he said? That's all he said. So you didn't send them? No, I never sent them. And now I've got 20 of them. And there have been discussions about doing an album together, haven't there? So how, how did those discussions go? So Sean approached me once with his great idea just before we were going on stage to do a show he said right i've got a solo album we're going to put it out under happy monday's name and i'll give you a, i'll give you a quarter publishing and it was like I, I can't have a quarter publishing for something i've not done and i'm not even heard your solo album and he didn't like that and then Probably a year later, Gaz was staying at our house in uh, near Topanga, and we went for a meeting with McGee on Sunset Boulevard. Lovely setting. And McGee came up with, uh, Sean wants to write all the music for the new Mondays album. <laughs> and it, it was like, yeah, take my job away, dude. Why don't you? So Sean wrote his melodies and lyrics for the Mondays songs as the singer and the rest of the band you each wrote for your own instruments, right? And so for him to come up with, 
Yeah, I've, uh, I've spoke to Sean, he wants to do all the music for the new album, and me and guys just went, no chance. Absolutely no chance. And that was, that was kind, of, that was, it just got left there. There's no new music. And Alan McGee, who's their manager, when I, when I saw him, I was like, why don't they do a new record? We're, you know, and then he goes, I don't want to. That's not true. Oh. The <laughs> no, no, I'm sure. No, okay. I'm saying that, no, well, no. maybe Sean... Sean didn't want to do didn't... All the band were gagging to do an album, but Sean wanted to do a solo album and wanted the band to put it out as a Happy Mondays album. They all said, no, we're the band, we want to write the music. Actually, the actually... Probably I have heard that. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Why do you think he wanted to exclude the band from the album? Because of his ego. He's huge. But somebody had to write the music, and if he can't write the music, then wouldn't it have made sense for him to work with the people that he knows he has the magic with? It makes sense to me and you. Mm. So Don't... what do you think the rationale was from his perspective? He's puddled. I think our kid's puddled to the point of puddleness. Lives in Puddle Town. Who would have done the music? I don't know. Maybe he just got other people in. Yeah, instead of the real band. In instead of the real band. And then you would have had to tour as though that was your music. Yeah. And play the songs. Yeah, I'd, I'd have them. to be a phony. Yeah. I ain't no phony. No. No. There was a fifth album, wasn't there, that was officially a Mondays album, but wasn't really a Mondays album. Tell, tell me about that one. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I think Gaz was the only original member, as well as, well as Sean. It was Gaz and Sean. There's some good tracks on it. I know Gaz did a lot of work on it, but it's not a Mondays album. No. How can it be? OK, let's go back to... Um, We've done the, the Hallelujah EP. Mm -hmm. You went on MTV. Mm -hmm. Things started to kick off. You started to become known in Europe. Yeah. That's when the final ingredient of the magic cake came along. The fab Rowetta. What an amazing voice she's got. And she's a great woman. We love her, don't we? I just sometimes talk too much, but usually when I'm drinking, I'm not drinking this week, so I'm all right. <laughs> I'm not a Red Bull. <laughs> I used to hang around the Happy Mondays office all the time after seeing them on the other side of midnight and deciding I'm going to join this band. Um, yeah, it was Tony Wilson's show, they did performance and I decided that's the band for me because I'm a punk. And then the first time I'll have seen him, met him, would have been in the office because I was there all the time. Simply Red's manager had the office next door. They managed me, Elliot Rashman. So I was always in the Mondays office trying to get this role that wasn't created yet as the girl from the Mondays. Uh, because I loved um, T-Rex and I wanted to be that girl um, to do something like that with the Mondays. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role 
like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The next thing you did was you were asked to write a song on a, was it Island Records compilation? Oh. You had to pick a cover version. Oh, no, it was that was for Electra in America, who we were signed to. It was their 40th anniversary of Electra Records. No, it was signed to Electra. All right. Come on, get your facts right. <laughs> Getting your facts wrong. Oh. <laughs> Make muzzles. Um, no, it was Electra's 40th anniversary, and they was getting their current artist to do a cover version of a past release on Electra. And by the time it got... I watched you do Love Wars by uh, Womack and Womack, but I think I think Paul Eaton ended up doing that one. Um, so we was... By the time he got around to us, we was left with the dregs of uh, the back catalogue. Yeah. And someone at Electra sent us a cassette tape with, like, six or seven songs on. And it was all awful. All of them. And then Step On came. Uh, no. He's going to step on you again. No, you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> oh, God. What happened? You, you did a song called Tokolashi Man first. No, we didn't. You did. No. You did. I was there at the studio in Chiswick. That's because we already done Step oh, On. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Oh, sorry come on, Angela. The history here. You was married was, to me. I know. No, I wasn't at that point. Oh, OK, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's my excuse. <laughs> so... We got sent a cassette tape with six, seven songs on. Pick one of these. It was all crap. Um, and, and the best of the bunch was He's Going to Step On You Again because I found a loop, a, a, a percussion loop, um, in the song that would work as a groove. So we sampled it and had it going round as a groove and we was working on this song. And it was time to do it in the studio with uh, Paul Oakenfold and Steve Osborne. This is way before Pills and Thrills. Mm. It was like Alexa was giving us free studio time and we was going to write this song with these two guys in Chiswick and it turned out to be Step On. And halfway through the sessions, I don't care what anybody says, whether they claim it or not, it's not true. It was me that said, this is too good to go on a compilation album. We need to release this as, as a single. This is a hit record. And Paul Oakenfold agreed. When yeah. Step On came, it was like, oh, my God, this is a proper international record. This is mm. a hit record mm. with a fresh sound and a different approach and a great bunch of not the best musicians in the world, but who had a vibe and a swagger, with a great vocalist with Roetta, with a character like Bez. It was a moment in musical time that you look back on and go, wow, man, that, what is this? Mm -hmm. And the kids wanted to buy into it, and they did. Mm -hmm. They bought into the swagger, the look, the style. It, it, again, it was right time, right place. Mm -hmm wasn't Tony Wilson, wasn't Steve Osborne, wasn't Sean Ryder, it was me. <laughs> Halfway through the session, after he heard Mark Dave put his guitar down, 
it was like whoa this is fucking good this is really good and um and and nathan took that on board he went i think you're right you know, we need to put this out as a single and it 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 proved it proved me right but didn't get to know him really well until we started recording really um would have been when we did step on um so yeah i invited nathan to come and watch me at a gig opposite opposite in legends where they filmed rope for luck and so nathan came to see me and said yes a couple of weeks later so i went to record it step on in eden in chiswick and yeah and did my vocal so we had to then have to do then nathan had to get in touch with Electra and say look i know you paid for this but we want to put it out as a single they agreed. But did you said, have to give them the money for the studio? No, no, no. So long, that's when we did Takaloshi Man, which right. was the B side, which was another John Congas song, and we gave them that for their 40th anniversary right. uh, box set. That was a good song too. I like. Yeah, that song. it was okay. It was good. Yeah. yeah, Our kids got a bit of beef with with, uh, with John Congas because we never got any publishing for that. I mean. Why would you be? Why would you expect publishing though if it was his song? Because Sean's got an ego. Oh, okay. <laughs> but there was, back a, to the there big, was back an to issue. The big ego. There was an issue with Step On. Mm. Um, the keyboard of Step On. Mm. I think was that written by Steve Osborne. Da, no, da, 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 that was all Paul Davis. Was that Paul Davis? Because yeah. that was a new part of the song that the Mondays put onto the song. Mm -hmm. But because you didn't get any publishing at all, if anybody uses that as a sample, the Mondays don't get the money. Yeah. The original writers of the song get the money. That's not right. Is no, it? that's not fair. I think the only person that should get publishing off that song is actually Paul Davis. Yeah. For that keyboard intro. Which is, like, I mean, it's iconic, really, Yeah, isn't it? you know what song it is as soon as that comes on. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. The only person that should get publishing for that, certainly not Sean. Um, maybe I should. It's a complete <laughs> new bass line, but I followed, I followed his, his blueprint for the changes in the song, so like, no, I don't deserve it. Paul Davis. Yeah. Talk a bit about Paul Davis. It's kind of a quirky <laughs> character, isn't he? Very, very eccentric. But a sweet guy. Yeah, very funny, very eccentric, and obviously very creative. Yeah. If you're looking at the intro to step on. Yeah. I can't remember what I did, but they say, we like that, play it again, and they couldn't, and they'd be sequenced and cut down, and so I've had a lot of help off a lot of people, including the band. Yeah, I learned a different way of playing. Mega. So, again, we're jumping ahead here, but he's the only original member that's no longer yeah. in the band, isn't he? Are you sad about that? Yeah, sad about it, but I, I think, you know, he was there 10 years ago on that reunion when we all got back together, you know, and he stepped yeah. out of it gracefully. Yeah. And Dan, who's, who does his job now, who does keyboards and programming, he's been with us 10 years, uh, and he's like... Um, He's integrated. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Okay, so Step On did Step On come out before Pills and Thrills was recorded? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was really so then you were like, shit, we've got to get another album together quickly and ride on this wave yeah. of the popularity. Yeah. And we was in uh, our rehearsal room in Stratford. We'd moved 
Well, I can't, we'd moved out of somewhere um, and found this place in Stratford. Um, and we was writing a new album and it was time to go and record it. And we had like, we had like five or six ideas. One of them was Kinky Afro, which came from that hot chocolate cassette tape. Oh, really? Did it? Yeah, yeah. The, not, not, not the uh, actual... Just just the feel and the groove of Kinky Afro came from that hot chocolate cassette tape. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, I was playing it a lot. I was playing a lot of hot chocolate. So we went with half written Kinky Afro, um, half written... Um, half written Dennis and Lois, which wasn't called Dennis and Lois at the time. It was just the new one. Um... None of them had titles. So we went there with half an, half an album full of ideas and we did the rest in the studio. Is that normal to wait to be in the studio before you write? You're not meant to have written stuff before you go in? And... Yeah, and we, we always had done because we had plenty of time to write songs, mm. but we didn't have enough time to write them oh, all. We needed to get in the studio. Yeah. Paul and Sean's mum, Linda, helped them prepare for that trip to America in her own special way. The first time they ever went to America, uh, Sean came in with his bag of washing. He'd just bought these jeans and he wanted them washing first. Well, they both had these jeans that was in fashion there. And they were all ripped. And they'd gone out. And I thought, oh, my goodness. They can't go to America with the holes in the jeans. And I spent hours stitching all these rips up. And they came in, what have you done to our jeans? And you can't go to America with us. We've bought them like that. And after I, they bought these ripped jeans and I thought they needed sewing because they couldn't take holy jeans to America with them. So, who picked where you went to do that? Um, it was all of us. It was like, let's do it. Because we just, we was finishing a tour of America. Hmm. And it was like, why not stay over here? Go into Capitol Studios. I think Nathan found it. And it was, it was cheaper than doing it in London. Wow. For us all to stay over in L.A., use Capitol Studios, use Frank Sinatra's microphones, <laughs> which we did. And, um, uh, and and we all stayed for, like, six weeks. Six weeks. Where did you actually sleep? Like, where, where were you? We there? all was in the Oakwood Apartments in uh, Burbank, in Burbank. Okay. Yeah, it was, wow. uh, that was kind of a strange place, yeah. full of old porn stars and movie stars and all in, all in like, their 80s, doddering around, being at the pool. <laughs> Were you partying during that time? Was it like a hedonistic period for you or not? Um, no, it was serious work. We were from 11 in the morning till 11 at night. There was demos, rough songs, but they actually, within that rough song, I always knew there was a diamond somewhere. Yeah. And, and, and Sean's lyrics were brilliant. Yeah. I mean, you know... Call the cops, you're twisting my melon man, you know, I'd like to teach the world to sing, you know. Right. It, it, these lines spilled over into the club world. Right. The clubs I was playing at at that time, 
people were like, yeah, call the cops. And it wouldn't mean call the cops. It would, it would mean, you know, it's going off. We're having a great time. It was, uh, I remember me and Paul Oakenfold would, would lock ourselves into a vocal booth where he had his DJ decks set up and he'd be playing bits of records for me to get ideas. And I'd say, no, don't like that, don't like that. And he'd skip along and play these 12 inch singles. And he was like, that's good there. Keep playing that bit over and over. And he'd, t he'd turn it into a loop so I could get a bass line. I remember it on Loose Fit. We did uh, Loose Fit and a couple of other songs. We did, me and Paul Oganfold did. Of course, Bez was there too, bringing his unique vibe to the table. We just had the most amazing sound was working with Osborne and Oakenfold. He created this whole new sound. He understood what the Mondays, you know, our vision of what we, we thought we was. They made us that band, you know what I mean? When I got involved with Rope for Luck, it changed their sound. It changed their, their it changed Everything about Happy Mondays, from being that jingly jangly band, which they were known as, mm -hmm. to something that was more focused, something that the, 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 that generation at that time that were into Acid House, taking pills, going for it, mm -hmm. were all into, right? Mm -hmm. it, it was a, it was, that was the change. So that's why they came back to me and said, could you do Hallelujah? And when I'd done Hallelujah, then it led on to the album because suddenly Happy Mondays were known for this, right. not for that. Right. And that's when they started to become a lot more popular across the board right. and the country. And finally, as Alan Howard explains, MTV caught up to the Mondays. There was a whole new audience coming out, which was the clubbing scene. And it was going out and taking loads of drugs, going to warehouses. Um, getting off your head and they were they were perfect for that and that wasn't that wasn't that's the opposite opposite of stadium rock which is what mtv was all about prior to then so i think there was a bit of a there was a big big culture shock um when they came along paul oakenfold was careful to make his work style fit in with the band i had a different way of working to them and we had to make sure that we're all on the same page here, you know. His choice of car made Gaz Whelan laugh. He had a car, he had, he had a, a red Mustang convertible. He went, we was all like, you fucking cockney. Of course you have, you know what I mean? But he was lovely. He was really, really sweet, Paul Okafor. I must say, really sweet. It was, Paul got him really well, because he knew his old funk records and soul records, so Paul got him really well. And he used to have a booth and he used to play records. He was, no, we got him, Oak, he was lovely. Really nice bloke. Usually when you record a band, they're all in the same room and they're playing and then producers, you know, and uh, you know, giving them directions and telling them what to do. But I didn't do it like that. I didn't produce the record like that. It, it was individual moments with key, with the members of the band, talking them through the process of what we'd done when it came to remixing. Mark Day, the Monday's guitarist, also appreciated that time. We had our own apartments, our own cars. I was in Capricorn Records and just going in that building was like awe-inspiring because you could see all the artists on the wall. Um, just, yeah, it was... But there again, we did things separately. So it'd be like, right, I used to 
do my bit in the morning when I'm fresh, when there's nobody about while they're all in bed. I don't want any interference. Don't mind for me, because it used to get me back up. When you're in the studio, and Paul was the same, you like to have nobody around, just go in and do your bit. And uh, next thing, I turn around and... Um, it's a card out of uh, the cult. Ian Ashbury was behind. Bloody and people walking in and out. Well, what's going on here then? <laughs> was it exciting when you bumped into people like that and they were taking an interview? Yeah. Be walking down Holloway Boulevard and there'd be some filming going on. A lot of people dressed up as aliens. I thought this is a bit weird. <laughs> and filming. They're all filming. You know, there's a film set everywhere. Something always going on in Holloway Boulevard. It was like crazy. Yeah. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah, really enjoyed that. Um, and after that, um, I knew he was going somewhere after that album. Actually, being in, out, out in LA, we had big convertible cars, right, driving around, thinking we loaded them. And we had such an amazing time out there, you know what I mean? And the great thing about it as well at that time, that the, the band was getting on great as well. Who was quiet? Paul was, Paul was thorough. Paul would turn up and do what he wanted, what he needed to do. Mm -hmm. We could sit with Paul individually and say, change it up a bit, do this, do that, and he would. But Paul was solid. Paul, Paul was always a solid member of the band mm -hmm. that you spoke to and what you asked him to do, he would do and do quicker than other members of the band. Right. And okay. and that was Paul's role. You've got a room full of characters. Mm. It's not easy to manage characters. But Paul was thorough. None of them were trouble. None of them I yeah. had issues with. Yeah. It, 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 I think they all knew that we were on to something that was special. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why they were all on time and turned up. Was Bez around at that point? Oh, yeah, yeah, Bez was around. Yeah? Just... Yeah, he'd come in and, and sit in the corner and wobble his head and yeah. give his seal of approval. And I think it was Bez's idea to get Oka folded, get a DJ, because Bez had been out in a beef and said, the DJs, Oka, they're, like, they're producing dancer cards, I don't know why they shouldn't produce bands. I'm sure it was an off-the-cuff comment by Bez. And how well, well behaved was Sean at that point? Very well behaved. Yeah? Yeah, yeah. There's no, like... Partying, going off the rails, or no? There's one party that I never went to that Bez went to, the infamous one where he turned Julia Roberts down. Tell me about that. He said he came back from this party that was, oh, I think it was in a castle somewhere, some weird castle. He came back and said, "Who's Julia Roberts?" <laughs> She's an actress. Yeah, she was showing me a passport saying, I'm Julia Roberts, I want to go out with you. Let's go somewhere. I turned her down. He didn't know who <laughs> Julia Roberts was. <laughs> and the irony is, your kids ended up going to school with her. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Smaller world, isn't it? Mm -hmm. more, there's more coincidences around that school. We'll come to that, we'll come to that later. Um, so tell me about more times that you had in LA when you were doing that album. Can you think of you know, any incidents that went on in the studio? No, uh, although it, it was parties, it wasn't crazy, crazy parties. Gaz remembers one particular night. Soul to Soul were playing. So we, we'd turn up there and I don't know what we'd had. We'd had something. I can't remember, I can't remember what it was. What did we had? 
what had we ta- what had we taken? Taken something. And we turned up there and he was like, we got on the guest list through through the record label in America. And obviously seven of us, all off our nut and drunk. And we turn up and obviously it's America, it's soul to soul, we're the only white people in the audience. And we're at the we're like halfway up at the back, and about three songs in, we're all just like dancing off our head, and the crowd are turning looking at us. And then one someone from Soul to Soul points up with the singers and he's like, they're getting like, you know, and like they're looking at us, people are looking at us, and then, then they're back watching the band, you know, and all that. Uh, and then afterwards, there was a party at the hotel. We got there, and J- Jazzy B won't let us in. One of the dancers was from Manchester, from our side. He said, he said, you can't let it in. You, you, you ruined the show. <laughs> so. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Support comes from ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. You've heard the hype around AI. The truth is... AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. ServiceNow is the platform that puts AI to work for people across your business, removing friction and frustration for your employees, supercharging productivity for your developers, providing intelligent tools for your service agents to make customers happier, all built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Visit servicenow.com slash AI for people to learn more. We we hooked up with the Scousers and the Cockneys. Yeah. And um, it was like the first wave of ecstasy in America. They was bringing it over from England. Uh, okay. And it was like the Selects few was, was getting this ecstasy from England yeah. by the Cockneys and the Scousers. It was really like a, a magical moment uh, for the band. Eight weeks in LA, imagine eight weeks in LA, you know what I mean? That could have been really dangerous. John Pennington recalls the awful day when he found out that Paul had passed away. When I got the uh, the news that, you know, he died, I um, I was thinking back to all the, all the good times when he when he'd smile and you'd catch him because he wasn't a smiler. He wasn't one guy who goes around being super happy. But when you, when you really made him smile and it was like a moment, you know, it really helped me out in my time of uh, struggle. It was a huge loss. Not only because he, he'd been there from the start of my career, and popped in along the way and always been the same. He'd never changed, you know, never been a different person than what Paul was. The teenager Paul was the, you know, the 50 year old Paul, but the serious shit that he had to deal with, um, was just devastating to him. I felt lost, you know, because he'd, um, I'd lost somebody who, who was a very, very important part of my life. Losing a friend is bad enough, but losing somebody that's that important in music is 
It's devastating, really. There was nobody else like Paul. The sound, the persona, the the swagger on stage, the groove which which made Manchester move. Coming up on the show next week. I felt sad, you know, you've seen the kind of the rise and fall of someone. Um you know, and that's what happens sometimes when drink and drugs gets the better of you. There was a couple of people in the band doing heroin and then he just, he was, he wasn't, he'd lost his, he'd lost being about the music. I ended up being a complete nightmare. Yeah. It took me to dark, dark places, places I never want to go again. I was so intertwined with the Happy Mondays at one point. People thought I was from Manchester. What, with an accent like that? I know, until they heard me talk. Okay, we're playing out with another Big Arm track. This is Sweet Soul Music, and watch out for the Big Arm album being released any day now. This is some live footage that was shot in 2007 at a gig at the Inn on the Green in London. Thank you to our fab guests and, of course, to you for being with us. Please consider becoming a patron of the show. We're going to start giving a shout-out to all of our patrons. We've got some exciting goodies planned. So go to the website and find the link to uh, the Patreon account. Please give us a nice review and rating. It really helps. And subscribe to this YouTube channel. The website is paulrider.tv. It's got links to all of our socials, as well as a cool shop with some really fun merch. So go and have a look, treat yourself, and you'll be supporting the show in the process. Please join us again next week, same time, same place. And remember, the video version of the podcast premieres every Sunday at 8pm UK time and noon Pacific time. And me and Chico are there in the chat to answer any questions. We're going to have some other people joining us from time to time too. So thank you again for being here and see you next week. Bye. Crackers, if you let it bother you. Yeah, you would.